Hello everyone, this is recording number two, class number two in this course, English 218, Introduction to Creative Writing. In today's recording, you'll hear a conversation between me and uh, Claire Akebrand, my very talented, brilliant, smart, beautiful, patient, and long-suffering wife. We will be discussing David Foster Wallace's essay called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. Also, at the end of this recording, I'll give you a optional and just for fun writing prompt that will hopefully help you start to see the world like a writer. Okay, I would like to uh, begin today's recording with a quote, another quote, hopefully inspirational, about writing. This is by one of my favorite authors, Robert Frost, who once said, I have never started a poem yet whose end I knew. Writing a poem is discovering. I think this is true across the board, no matter what genre you're writing in, whether it's a poem or a novel or a short story or an opera or whatever. Don't feel like you have to know the end before you start or else you may never start. Instead, just dive right in. Walk into the darkness, be brave, and trust that you will find your way. The process of discovery is, in fact, what gives the greatest writing its sense of magic and surprise. Think about it. If you know how the poem or story will end before you even start, if you're not surprising yourself with your own writing, then chances are you probably won't be surprising your readers. Okay, Claire and I had a great time discussing this essay, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. So without further ado, let's dive right into that conversation. Hello, everyone. This is take two. Here I am once again with my very talented, beautiful, hilarious, brilliant wife, Claire Akebrand, author of a book of poems called What Was Left of the Stars. We can't forget the product placement section. (laughs) A book of poems called What Was Left of the Stars and a novel called The Field is White. These are available for purchase on Amazon. That's right. (laughs) Okay, so um, we're going to talk now about this essay, this very long essay. It's almost a book. It's so long. Mm -hmm. A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again by David Foster Wallace. Um, You remember the beginning. I'll just read a few sentences here. I have seen sucrose beaches and water of very bright blue. I have seen an all-red leisure suit with flared lapels. I have smelled what suntan lotion smells like spread over 21,000 pounds of hot flesh. I have been addressed as Mon in three different nations. I have watched 500 upscale Americans dance the electric slide. I have seen sunsets that looked computer-enhanced and a tropical moon that looked more like a sort of obscenely large and dangling lemon than like the good old stony U.S. moon I'm used to. I have, very briefly, joined a conga line. I've got to say I feel like there's been a kind of Peter Principle in effect on this assignment. A certain swanky East Coast magazine approved of the results of sending me to a plain old simple state fair last year to do a directionless essay-ish thing. So now I get offered this tropical plum assignment with the exact same paucity of direction or angle. I really love that phrase, directionless essay-ish thing, Mm -hmm. to describe his genre. And that's exactly what both of these essays are go and say what you've seen and he just kind of does exactly that says every single thing that he's seen no particular direction it's a sort of intentional rambling structure clara you said last time that you like this even more than the state fair essay i also like it more but why why do you think it's better well first of all it's much longer which is what i wanted the state fair essay to be it's more lush in its descriptions and Of course, the subject matter is also just more interesting. That's true. So that helps a lot, but... um, I mean, it's hard to beat those baton M16. (laughs) But no, you're right. It is inherently weirder subject matter. Yes. Um, It's funnier. It's also darker, Mm. which, you know, makes it even more interesting. And especially considering the subject matter, this is a carefree sort of cruise. Yeah. I mean, on the surface, you mean. Right. Yeah. 
But he does delve into very uh, dark, uncomfortable places of the human psyche. Well, like what? Say more about that. Well, he, uh, in the beginning of the essay, he talks about those, what are they called? Guests on a cruise? What are they? Passengers? Yeah. <laughs> and he talks about those passengers who tell him about the suicide. Yeah. And uh, he says there is something about the sea and being out on the sea that kind of induces an existential crisis. Yeah. That's one of the darker moments. And his preoccupation with sharks, <laughs> well, that's mostly funny, but but it also reminds you continuously that something's lurking underneath the luxury and the fun. Yeah. There's danger. The waves, even, he talks about, sometimes you're reminded that you are on the ocean and there must have been a very powerful wave because you feel you lose your footing a little or you lean a mm -hmm. little bit, right? Yeah. And the ocean becomes a symbol for like a vast enveloping loneliness. Right. Or dread. You know, he even, mm -hmm. he even kind of underscores that word, dread. Mm -hmm. And he talks about another aspect of the darkness is he talks about the human psyche's inability to be pleased with the status quo. Well, yeah. We're kind of maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but mm -hmm. since we're talking about darkness, that's one of his epiphanies. That's one of his, that's one of the things he learns on this cruise is that no matter how pampered a person is, no matter how surrounded by luxuries they are, there's this kind of unfillable hole. Right. 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 Like this cruise is, des is designed to um, appeal to the infantile part of you, which at the same time, that's the part that's completely insatiable. So it's impossible yeah. to be satisfied. Yeah, there's that part this, of you will never be satisfied. Which is a terrifying realization. It's like, right. wait, here I am surrounded by luxury and it's still not good enough. The pickle is touching the bread and soaking it. Mm -hmm. That other cruise ship just over there looks <laughs> slightly wider. Mm -hmm. Their pool water looks slightly more neon blue, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, I'm mad now at my magazine for booking me on this brand of cruise ship and not that brand of cruise ship. Mm -hmm. And I bet the water on that cruise ship can get so cold out of the tap that it turns your knuckles <laughs> blue. And here it can't really get that cold. So he realizes that, wait, like, I am, is, am I not able, fundamentally, am I not able to be satisfied as a human being? Which is kind of a terrifying thought. Mm hmm Yeah. Is that, I mean, I don't know the answer to this question. Is that the conclusion of this essay? Do you think that he has a follow-up answer to that? What, what does a human being need to do to be satisfied? Well, at the end of the essay, he says there's nothing in New York City um, that's going to be worse than a week of doing nothing <laughs> on the in the middle of nowhere on the on the ocean. And I thought that was yeah, so interesting. Great. That was actually a, a very bright moment and a hopeful moment. That's great. Why is that so hopeful? Well, it's basically saying that. Uh, a cruise with all the luxuries imaginable might not satisfy you, but your ordinary everyday life can. Mm -hmm. And you, you need certain annoyances, you need certain challenges to feel, I don't know. Um, like a human. Right, and sufficiently stimulated. And Yeah. That, remember that wonderful part where he's like, I remember the last time every single one of my needs was anticipated and provided that time too i was also floating and the water was salty and warm oh my Remember gosh that? <laughs> that's so good so it's like the, all the and yeah. pampers the, the pampering yes, pampering pampering becomes a kind of symbol for this infantile desire to revert back into the womb and i think he realizes yeah like that's not actually the road to fulfillment. You don't want to revert back to an embryo. What a human being needs to feel fulfilled and to feel like he or she has a life full of meaning is some amount of trial, obstacle, suffering. Drudgery. Drudgery. That's a, that's a great word. Yeah, drudgery. That if you remove drudgery and these other negative things, then you're a baby. You're an embryo again. And that's, and that's not like maximizing yourself worth and self-potential it's right. kind of degradation in fact and you feel and you're in the very uncomfortable place again where you feel helpless that nobody wants to feel helpless and like you have to wait to be 
um, <laughs> served and spoon-fed. and Yeah, that's great. You can't be spoon-fed happiness. That's so great. You cannot be spoon-fed happiness. And, and he looks at other people on the cruise ship. I, I'm thinking of Mona, the character of Mona in particular, this teenage girl who seems to have been spoon-fed her whole life. And, you know, she mm. he doesn't like her for particular reasons. But anyway, we'll get to the characters in a minute. But that's definitely one reason why this essay is better. It, I don't really love this word, but it is more profound. Mm. It's more meaty. It's, it's more psychologically nuanced and revelatory. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. He learns more about human nature in this essay than I think he does in the State Fair essay. Mm-hmm. And it's longer and it's more lush, as you say. I totally agree with all that. Any other reasons why this essay is better, even even better than the State Fair essay? Um, this also relates to the pampering, but I love everything he says about advertising yeah. in general. And humans need for advertisement and and people wanting to be told what to want and so easily believing you know like the brochure about the cruise all the brochures he reads are obviously you know we promise to pamper you like you've never been pampered before and (laughs) And he's not only that but they say you will feel relaxed like they're commanding you yes or predicting that you will feel certain ways right and in that way it actually mirrors the Kmart people, I think, in the State Fair essay quite a bit. These kinds of people, I think, are, or the kind of people that David Foster Wallace mostly has a problem with are people that are lazy, who want to be spoon-fed certain things, like comfort or ideas or thoughts. Right. Like, Kmart people believe in pro wrestling <laughs> right. and in tabloids they so easily buy you know fake news right and just like these upper class people who want to believe that yeah they can be yeah be spoon-fed happiness that's a yeah that's a that's a good parallel i hadn't really thought of that but also just like the kmart people he does have some really surprisingly charming things to say about these passengers i remember one of them is that they're mostly kind of elderly or retired. And there's this lovely moment where he observes how in the slow rocking of the boat back and forth, the women are always, the women are forced to rely on their husbands to kind of steady their step, Mm -hmm. literally. And the husbands, he noticed, kind of stand up straighter, look more firm, you know, Mm -hmm. and have this look on their face that they're like, you know, being relied on again. (laughs) for once and the women are kind of wonderfully draped on their husbands like they used to be when they were teenagers and he says i i think i know now why retired people love coming on cruises that was a beautiful moment it's really cute and surprising yeah yeah it's really cute yeah so he has a lot of very smart things to say about human nature a lot of smart things to say about advertising and the way we interact with the world i think another great reason why this is an even better essay is because of the characters. So I've just made a little list here of all the characters. I mean, I think he's as good as pretty much any fiction writer I've ever read. This isn't a piece of fiction. It's a piece of nonfiction. But the characters, the people that he describes, become so real and so nuanced. And we're, we, we become so familiar with them. So there's Tibor, or who, who he refers to as the Teebster, which I love. Mr. Dermatitis, uh, Captain Video. Petra, the woman who cleans his room. Trudy, Alice, Mona. Ping Pong Pro Winston. That's a wonderful character. Uh, Cruise director Scott Peterson. Also, there's Deirdre, the little girl who plays him in chess and beats him in chess, if I'm remembering. Mm -hmm. So, Claire, do you have anything to say about... I'm not sure how I would answer this question because great writing always involves a kind of magic. Like, how did she do that? You know, how did the author do that? Mm. But do you have any thing to say about how he makes these people seem so real, how he evokes them so well? I think he achieves that by describing both positive and negative qualities. Hmm. Um, He makes them charming and at the same time sleazy. (laughs) Yeah. Or handsome and at the same time horrifying in some way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he clearly has preferences. He loves some more than others, but you're right. Again, it's his honesty of depiction. 
Mm-hmm. One of my favorite moments. Of, I mean, if we just go to Tibor, where's Tibor? I'm flipping through the book looking for that Tibor part. Though Mona doesn't seem to have any good qualities. <laughs> no, he really hates Mona. But, you know, it's hard to blame him. Um, okay, let me just read this Tibor bit, and we can kind of dissect this. It's just a few sentences of characterization, and we can zoom in on how he's doing it so well. Table 64's waiter's name is, as mentioned before, Tibor. Mentally, I refer to him as the Teebster, but never out loud. I mean, even that much goes a long way, don't you think? Like, instantly, what do we know about Tibor? The author likes him, mm-hmm. but isn't too familiar with him. Otherwise, he would share this nickname, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know, I really like that. Tibor has dis- dismantled my artichokes and my lobsters and taught me the, that extra well done is not the only way meat can be palatable. We have sort of we have sort of bonded, I feel. He is thirty-five and about five foot four and plump, and his movements have the bird-like economy characteristic of small, plump, graceful men. Menu-wise, Tibor advises and recommends, but without the hauteur that's always made me hate the gastropedantic waiters in classy restaurants. Tibor is omnipresent without being unctuous or oppressive. He is kind of warm. He is kind and warm and fun. I sort of love him. His hometown is Budapest, and he has a postgraduate degree in restaurant management from an unpronounceable Hungarian college. His wife back home is expecting their first child. He is the head waiter for tables 64 through 67 at all three meals. He can carry three trays without precarity and never looks harried or on the edge the way most multi-table waiters look. He seems like he cares. His face is at once round and pointy and rosy. His tucks never wrinkles. His hands are soft and pink, and his thumb joint's skin is unwrinkled like the thumb joint of a small child. Why is that so good? Well, you would only notice (laughs) the wrinkleless thumb joint of a person you either really like or really hate. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's another example of him seeing everything. So there's nothing that is beneath notice. Mm -hmm. Everything is worthy of being noticed. How many wrinkles does he have on his thumb joints? That's going in the essay. (laughs) I find that so surprising. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he's compared to a small child, so he's kind of like this object of benign... Or he's kind of pure in some way. He's pure and innocent. That's what it does to his characterization. It makes him seem pure and innocent. Yeah. That's not how most waiters... That's not how... So I also noticed about this characterization that it's mostly visual. Like it's... There's a few things about it that are psychological, like he's not oppressive or unctuous. He is kind and warm and fun. But about 90% of this is visual, sensory. Wrinkles on his thumb, the complexion of his face, how tall is he, right? Mm -hmm. Um... He does have a preoccupation with people's appearance, doesn't he? Well, I think that goes to show. So again, if you're taking notes out there, people who are listening, how to become a great writer, trust the senses. That's what I would say. Trust the senses. Trust that you can get to the psyche of your characters by showing them to your readers, right? Mm -hmm. If you tell us that a person has a face that is round and pointy and rosy, his tux never wrinkles, his hands are soft and pink, and his thumb joint skin is unwrinkled like the thumb joint of a small child, we are going to... Those aren't only visual. They are visual, but they evoke a whole mood, a whole tone, a whole attitude, a whole psychology, mm-hmm. right? And they evoke that psychology much better than actual statements of psychology would, I think. Yeah. So trust the image more than the abstraction. Right. Because... For me, actually, the the least interesting part about the section you read was, um, without being unctuous or pre- um, or oppressive, he's kind and warm and fun. Yeah. I mean, that is so less. I mean, so much less powerful than the yeah. images. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, so another characterization that I just have to read is this. It's kind of not a short passage. I'll try to abridge it so it is short. But I absolutely love this enormously long footnote about his table companions, Mona and Trudy and Alice, etc. I'll read this and we can talk more about these characters too. Mona, so so they're all assigned 
the same table that they have to go sit at for every meal, right? So they get to know their table companions quite well over the course of the week. Mona is 18. Her grandparents have been taking her on a luxury cruise every spring since she was five. Mona always sleeps through both breakfast and lunch and spends all night at the Scorpio Disco and in the Mayfair Casino playing the slots. She's 6'2 if she's an inch. She's going to attend Penn State next fall because the agreement was that she'd receive a four-wheel drive vehicle if she went someplace where there might be snow. She was unabashed in recounting this college selection criterion. She was an incredibly demanding passenger and diner, but her complaints about slight aesthetic and gustatory imperfections at table lacked Trudy and Esther's discernment and integrity and came off as simply churlish. Mona was also kind of strange-looking a body like Bridget Nielsen or some centerfold on steroids, and above it framed in resplendent and frizzless blonde hair, the tiny, delicate, pale, unhappy face of a kind of corrupt doll. (laughs) (laughs) Her grandparents, who retired every night right after supper, always made a small ceremony after dessert of handing Mona $100 to, quote, go have some fun with. This $100 bill was always in one of those little ceremonial bank envelopes, that has B. Franklin's face staring out of the porthole-like window on the front, and written on the envelope in red magic marker was always, We love you, honey. Mona never once said thank you for the money. She also rolled her eyes at just about everything her grandparents said, a habit that quickly drove me up the wall. I find I'm not as worried about saying potentially mean stuff about Mona as I am about Trudy and Alice and Esther and Esther's mute, smiling husband, Frank. Apparently, Mona's special customary little gig on 7NC Luxury Cruises is to lie at the waiter and maitre d' and say that Thursday is her birthday, so that at the formal supper on Thursday she gets bunting and a heart-shaped helium balloon tied to her chair and her own cake and pretty much the whole restaurant staff comes out and forms a circle around her and sings to her. Her real birthday, she informs me on Monday, July 29th, and when I observe that July 29th is also the birthday of Benito Mussolini, Mona's grandmother shoots me a kind of death look, though Mona herself is excited at the coincidence, apparently confusing the names Mussolini and Maserati. Because it just so happens that Thursday, 16 March, really is the birthday of Trudy's daughter, Alice, and because Mona declines to forfeit her fake birthday claim and instead counterclaims that her and Alice's sharing bunting and natal attentions at 316's formal supper promises to be radical, Alice has decided that she wishes Mona all kinds of ill. And by Tuesday, 14 March, Alice and I have established a kind of anti-Mona alliance, and we amuse each other across table 64 by making subtly disguised little strangling and stabbing motions whenever Mona says anything. A set of disguised motions Alice told me she learned at various excruciating public suppers in Miami with her serious boyfriend Patrick, who apparently hates almost everyone he eats with. So there are several details in here I find absolutely heartbreaking and stunning, really. Like, I mean, that face of a corrupt doll is beautiful, but how heartbreaking is that they write on the envelope in red marker, we love you, honey. Mm-hmm. And they slide the envelope over with this $100 bill in it. I mean, he doesn't have to say anything else, and I know so much about this family dynamic. Mm-hmm. so much about this relationship yeah i can't help but wonder if he has such a problem with mona because he recognizes in her the same weakness he sees yeah. in himself that's a great point and in many of these other cruise passengers right well mona i hadn't thought of that before but you're right mona is the fin- the final product of what he sees himself becoming right when he's on this cruise like Nothing is good enough for... By day seven, nothing is good enough for him. Mm -hmm. The pickle can't touch the bread. Everything is slightly off, right? Mm -hmm. The water isn't cold enough. So yeah, if he goes on the cruise after cruise every year from the age of five, this is who he becomes, a kind of soulless, corrupt doll for whom nothing is good enough and life can offer no... Nothing of meaning. Right. I love those little strangling noises and stabbing noises. (laughs) Really good. Okay, so that's character. I also, I mean, I want to say more about the characterization of the author. We talked a lot about that in our discussion of the State Fair essay, and not much is different here. He's the same kind of authorial persona, um, deeply neurotic, 
very verbose, hyper-observant, hyper-self-critical, hyper-critical in general, right? Second guesses himself. There are a few details that he offers us that tell us a lot about him that just can't let pass by without mentioning, like the fact that he commits that journalistic faux pas of asking for extra au jus sauce to pour over the boat so he can attract the sharks. <laughs> and uh, that's the thing that caused Mr. Dermatitis to forbid him entry to most places of interest on the <laughs> ship. And I love this interaction with this little girl, Deirdre. And I just want to read. Th- I, this won't be like a huge reading, I promise. I do really want to read just a few sentences from this because I find him so good at very concise characterization. So where is this Deirdre? So remember, he's um, loafing around the library, playing with chess sets, and sees this little girl. And this is what he says. I probably should have seen this and certain other signs of impending humiliation as the kid first comes over. And I'm sitting there trying a scenario where both sides of the board deploy a Queen's Indian and tugs on my sleeve and asks if I maybe I'd like to play. She really does tug on my sleeve and calls me Mr., and her eyes are roughly the size of sandwich plates. In retrospect, it occurs to me that this girl was a little tall for nine and worn-looking, slump-shouldered, the way usually only much older girls get, a kind of poor, psychic posture. Mm. However good she may be at chess, this is not a happy little girl. I don't suppose that's germane. Deirdre pulls up a chair and says she usually likes to be black, and informs me that in lots of cultures, black isn't thanatotic or morbid, but is the spiritual equivalent of what white is in the U.S., and then in these other cultures, it's white that's morbid. I tell her I already know all that. (laughs) So it's that last sentence I love so much. So he's being like this little girl, this poor little girl, is just trying to make chit-chat and show off how smart she is, like any little girl would want to do. And he starts bickering back. I tell her I already know all that. Like, again, he's willing to be open about how immature and childish he is, you know, Mm -hmm. bickering. And like his ego is wounded by this little girl. So he has to get kind of snippy with her. (laughs) So charming. What else? Oh, yeah. Let's talk about this. So what would you say, Claire, if I... If you were a student in this class, right? And Mm -hmm. you had the option of trying to write a page or two that was an imitation of his style, what would you do? I, I don't think that any great writer can be reduced to a recipe or a checklist, so I don't want to give that impression. You know, It's much more complicated than that. But just to start out, what, what, would you, what would you look for? What kind of sentences would you aim for? What would you not do? How can you imitate this author's style? I would say um, he doesn't use a ton of metaphors not a i mean when he does when he describes for example the sea um those really stood out to me because he does use them kind of sparingly actually i feel like his the beauty in his writing comes not from necessarily lush metaphors but rather um the things he chooses to describe right so if i had to go out and write an essay about a certain group of people in his style, I would look for what is weirdest about them. Right. Not necessarily the color of their clothes or unless it's like an all red suit, like the guy in this essay. But I would notice the weirdest things. And then I would try to go even deeper to notice details about that weird thing. Yeah. Like he notices about Deirdre that her arm keeps swinging out because she's used to a timer by the chess set. So, yeah. she, so like, oh, she's That's practiced. So she's like an expert, you know. Yes. So it, it's a weird thing, and it reveals something uh, much more important about her, uh, her, her, her character. Yes, I, I would really look for those strange um, for for eccentricities. And Petra, another example of eccentricities is Petra saying only two phrases in English to him, more or less: "You are a funny thing," and "Is no problem." Mm-hmm. Right, it's, it's those little paint, little little streaks of paint. Very tiny little streaks of paint can evoke a whole person. You know, he also mm-hmm. calls her epicanthically doe-eyed, just the eyes of a deer. You know, and he really develops a kind of <laughs> obsessive crush on her. 
I know she's kind of a robot, f- but it, when he quotes her saying, uh, what, what is, that? is no problem. And you, you are a funny thing. Yeah. That reveals <laughs> so much about what kind of relationship they might have that she is not just cleaning his room, but that he has probably had some conversations with her and try to make her laugh. Yeah. And why would he try to make her laugh? (laughs) Because possibly he wants to charm her. It's revealing in many ways. You say she's kind of a robot, which is totally true because, I mean, okay, we're not done talking about how to imitate his style, but just to make a short detour back to the darkness of this essay, one of the aspects of this darkness is that he realizes after a few days on this boat that uh, he isn't wanted there. Mm -hmm. You know, like... Petra isn't cleaning his room because she loves him mm-hmm. and wants him to be happy. She's cleaning this room because she has to, and in fact, will be extremely relieved when he's gone because he mm-hmm. is causing the room to be messy. Yeah. So he, all of the sources of pampering and fake affection are just that, fake. Right. Right? And emphasized him the fact that he is kind of, a grit of sand and this well-oiled machine that would be working much better if he was gone. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay, so that's great. What what else does he do stylistically that you would want to see in an imitation of him? I would pull out some bigger words sometimes totally. to kind of elevate the the diction a little bit, but not yeah, like I said, just a little bit, just uh, sprinkled sparingly. Yeah, you don't want to epicanthically doe-eyed Petra. You know, I wouldn't know what that word means unless I've Googled it. Right. But it it sounds... it's it's a, This is a very hard thing to get right because it could so easily sound like you're trying too hard to be clever. We touched on this a little bit in our last discussion. Mm-hmm. It can so easily sound like you're trying to be smarter than your audience. Um, so they, they so often backfire using words like epicanthically, right? Right. And so often backfire. But if, like, you're totally right, if used sparingly and in situations when really, truly, no other word would do that job, then yeah, they can really go a long way to give you the sense that actually you trust your reader is as smart as you and can keep up, mm-hmm. right? And can contribute to the sense of lushness that you described earlier on. So Right, so break the monotone a little bit of, of neutral diction. And, like... I think another reason he gets away with it is he can say epicanthically doe-eyed Petra, but then he can also say about Tibor, I sort of love him. That's a whole sentence. I sort of love yes. him. So there's this mix of high diction and low kind of casual, colloquial, everyday talking tone. Mm-hmm. I sort of love him. Oh, really? oh, David Foster Wallace is a human. And he sounds like I like he's here in the room just speaking, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not like this weird academic voice is constantly coming at us without without a break right he writes like he wants to show you that he loves both language all words but that he also appreciates um a a casual tone yeah i love that he that's a great point i mean you could call it you could say that the kind of shadow subject of this essay is language Mm -hmm. you know it's about a cruise and it's about this experience of being on a cruise but Man, do you learn a lot about language and how to use language and the way that people speak. I mean, 3P Winston, Ping Pong Pro Winston, you know, we only get a few lines of dialogue from him, but he's like, wicked hat, dope hat, love that hat. He really wants his Spider-Man hat. (laughs) So David Foster Wallace is highly tuned to the way that people use language. (laughs) And yeah, I think the the shadow subject of this essay is, isn't language amazing? I know, yeah. You you feel his love for language. For sure. The only other thing I would add to that question about how to imitate his style is sentence length. Certainly not all of his sentences are long. Like, you know, we talked about sentences like, I sort of love him. That's a complete sentence. Lots of short sentences. But these are counterbalanced with really enormous sentences, one of which I want to read right now. This is about the um, him trying to get his zinc oxide for his nose. And this snafu with the baggage. If you're following along, sorry, I should have been giving you page numbers before, but this is 291, page 291 in the PDF. So he goes down to get his duffel bag, and he picks it up himself, and he's not supposed to, because there's all these stewards and deckhands that are supposed to pick up all the passengers' bags themselves. 
So he's made this horrible mistake. Only later did I understand what I'd done. Okay, well, let me pause and remind you. The reason I'm reading this sentence is to highlight the effect that a really long sentence can have on a reader. Why, as a writer, would you choose to write something in a really long sentence as opposed to chop it up into many shorter sentences? Only later did I understand what I had done. Only later did I learn that the, that, that little Lebanese Deck 10 porter had his head just about chewed off by the also Lebanese Deck 10 head porter, who'd, has, who'd had his own head chewed off by the Austrian chief steward, who'd received confirmed reports that a Deck 10 passenger had been seen carrying his own luggage up the port hallway of Deck 10 and now demanded rolling Lebanese heads for this clear indication of porterly dereliction and had reported, the Austrian chief steward did, the incident, as is apparently SOP, to an officer in the guest relations department, a Greek officer with revo shades and a walkie-talkie, an officerial epaulette so complex I never did figure out what his rank was. And this high-ranking Greek guy actually came around to 1009 after Saturday supper to apologize on behalf of practically the entire Chandra's shipping line, and to assure me that ragged-necked Lebanese heads were even at that moment rolling down various corridors in piacular recompense for my having had to carry my own bag. And even though this Greek officer's English was in lots of ways better than mine, it took me no less than ten minutes to express my own horror and to claim responsibility and to detail the double bind I'd put the porter in, brandishing at relevant moments the actual tube of zinc oxide that had caused the whole snafu, ten or more minutes before I could get enough of, the, of a promise from the Greek officer that various chewed-off heads would be reattached and employee <laughs> records unbesmirched to feel comfortable enough to allow the officer to leave. And the whole incident was incredibly frazzling and angst-fraught and filled almost a whole mead notebook and is here recounted in only its barest psychoskeletal outline. Oh my gosh. Psychoskeletal is a great word, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Again, the mojust, he just knows the perfect word. He knows when to write a short sentence, and he knows when to write a long sentence. For me, the effect that this long sentence has is to enact the sense of exhaustion that this event had in real life in the language itself. So this event was like this long, drawn-out, exhausting, never-ending, run-on problem, and he wants his sentence to mirror that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, keep that in mind when you're writing your own stuff. You can be strategic about when to write a short sentence and when to write a long sentence. So to summarize the author's style, notice strange things about people that are visual but also kind of can reveal more about their inner life. Use words that are strange and unexpected and that people might not know but don't overdo it. Right, and then especially in relation to the, some ridiculous story like you just read, I think a lot of his humor comes yeah. from him describing really ordinary things in a really with really high diction, right? Yeah, that's totally right. It, the heads were rolling in piacular recompense. Piacular is a word I had to Google, which means something that requires atonement, right? So they were, the heads were rolling in piacular recompense. I love that you had to Google that. Yeah, I have no idea what that word means, right? But I, I kind of, again, it, he's an author for people who love language, and I'm, I get to put a new word in my mouth and chew it and taste a new flavor, you know? So it's really quite fun mm -hmm. if you're a language nerd. Yeah. Okay, so Claire, how this is a creative writing class, but I think it's important to connect it to higher purposes. What is the point of reading this other than the ways it can teach us to be a great writer? How will your life as a person be different now that you've read this essay? Like, yeah, why read it as a human being? I think one of the greatest appeals to me about the essay is that it reminds me that some of my greatest <laughs> desires are not actually desirable. Mm. Being pampered or enjoying some kind of ridiculous amount of luxury, <laughs> um, doing nothing. I mean, how often do I long to do nothing? And... But I know that it doesn't actually make me happy. It like actually leads to misery. <laughs> right. And it's one of those things you I just forget over and over and over again. So this essay is a, a an amazing reminder that there's nothing really as satisfying as just living your routine, ordinary life. <laughs> 
that's an amazing and very hopeful right thing to be reminded of you come he comes back from this and is relieved to yeah face the drudgery again yes that's amazing the drudgery can be kind of Daddy, di- can I divine drink from this? It's gonna be extra yes you can sweetie it's gonna be extra you can drink from it Guest appearance by our daughter. <clears throat> no, I think that's a great point. Um, it can make it can make the mundane seem vital and yeah, in a way sacred. I don't think that's an mm-hmm. overstatement. No, no. Another thing, also, is that uh, I think it it helps me look at certain situations in customer service much differently. Mm-hmm. Not just, I mean, it helps me see the humor in certain things, <laughs> the way. You know, the he talks about the um, customer service smile, which is really <laughs> a hilarious part so of the good, essay. Yeah. But uh, it's also a reminder that so much of our culture, or at least American culture, relies on us on these weird little pleasantries that are deep down actually quite depressing. And everybody knows it, but doesn't really know it. That's one of the reasons he loves Tibor so much, because remember... The first night they're there, Tibor comes to the table and says, how is everything? And they all customarily say, fine. Mm-hmm. And then he stops them and says, no, 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 no. Please tell me. Is yeah. okay? Is not okay? If if not okay, I fix. Right. That's and very unusual. He signaled to them, like, this isn't one of those situations where we play our parts and recite our speeches. Mm-hmm. I mean it. Meaningful language, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so it can it can be a good reminder to try in some small way to recreate those more meaningful interactions in our own lives yeah sincerity yeah meaning what you say and and not pretending yeah (laughs) that you like the person you're talking to more than you do yeah because everybody can see through that right i think i mean just to add i mean i agree that those are ways my life will be different but also i can't get over how I'm going to sound like a broken record now, but his ability to see the world. Right. It's just hard to, I don't know many other authors who are capable of seeing as much as him. And when I read him, I realize how much passes me by, mm-hmm. how much I'm blind to, how much that is beautiful or strange or interesting or worth noticing, the wrinkles on a waiter's thumb. I mean, mm-hmm. the sand, he describes beaches and say, I've some beaches are the color of the sand is the color of sugar and another beach is the color of old sugar or dirty right. sugar yeah yeah anyway i just thought that was such a subtle difference but powerful in the fact that he noticed it and i think there's something i think we made this point last time in a way but it, it can't be made too often there's something this is byu so i can use this word sacred about that too the the something sacred about the exercise of seeing and something sacred about the importance to see better to see the world better mm-hmm. you know all these things are part of creation and i think deserve witnesses you know what i mean they deserve witnesses so that's one of the most profound things to me about him as an author that he's this ultimate witness and kind of affirms creation every little wrinkle every little every little you know shade of sand he will notice and say, I saw it. I saw you. The, the magazine hires him, go do this directionless essay-ish thing. Say what you see. And they they mean that kind of, but I take that as a kind of every author's sacred charge. That's what an author is, is for. Go say what you see. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, th- these essays have had such a big impact on me. Annoyingly, he makes it look so easy. Mm-hmm. Like, how hard could it be? You go on a cruise... And of course, you're going to be surrounded by a whole bunch of weirdness. So all I have to do is write that weirdness down. Mm-hmm. But it's really not that easy. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> it's quite hard. Mm-hmm. I, I know I could never pull this essay, this kind of essay off, sadly, Mm-mm. as much as I would want to. We went to Yellowstone on vacation a few years ago, and I I had been reading him at the time. And I thought, mm, I'll just give it a try and see what happens. Maybe I'll be able to pull something off. And I didn't come close to, be able, to being able to see as well as he saw. Mm-hmm. And to record as well as he recorded, right? I don't know how he does it. It's kind of miraculous. And I uh, really appreciate his willingness to delve into the um, dark aspects of humans. 
And that kind of um, observation is always going to lead to to uh, positive. I think so. To positive um, aspects of humans too, right? More hopeful hope comes by looking the dark parts in the face mm-hmm. and describing them as they are and not being afraid to, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that was that was a great answer. Okay, so if you're a writer and you want to be a great writer and you really liked these essays, which I hope you did, this is just a very, very small and abridged and incomplete list of lessons that I hope you can learn by reading him and, more importantly, rereading him. See everything, pick the right words, create a voice, sound like yourself, implicate yourself, right? You can criticize other people, but not if you're not mostly criticizing yourself, I would say. Mm-hmm. Love things. And don't forget to balance any kind of irony or skepticism with sincerity or enthusiasm. Like, if you love someone, say it in the essay. Don't act too cool to say what you love. Be wise. I mean, (laughs) that's easier said than done. But, you know, think hard. That's maybe a good translation of that. Think hard about the world. And don't be lazy in the way that you think about pleasure, luxury, advertising, human meaning. You know what I mean? Don't try to be too clever and assume your reader is at least as smart as you. I kind of hate to be done with these essays. Any last words? I feel like there's so much I want to say about this essay. Every time I, I'm just tempted, every you know, just to listen to the first few minutes every few days, <laughs> and whenever I do, I'm just it just happens to me all over again. <laughs> I just some of the best writing I've ever read. Me too. It's so good. It's a real masterpiece. I I really have no hesitation in saying it's the kind of thing that will be read, you know, hundreds of years from now. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that that's true. And, you know, we don't have to be done with it. Like you say, you keep going back to it and rereading it and re-listening to it and rereading it. And, you know, really for a writer, there's no such thing as reading. There's only rereading. So to have read something once isn't really to have read it at all. So don't be done with him. Come back to him if you really liked him and reread him again. One last thing. I just realized one last thing that I really appreciate about or about the essay and how it's changing my life. I'm reminded how ridiculous all of our struggles are <laughs> and I'm invited to laugh at them and that's, not that's great. take life too seriously. Yeah, that's great. A broken shower head or weird, you know, a lunch that isn't perfect or yeah, these things can get aggravating, but um, this essay does help put them into perspective as laughable and ridiculous. Yeah. Well, the end. Okay, today's writing prompt. Remember, this is just optional, totally for fun. This is not part of an assignment or a grade. This is just, you know, if you're extra bored, extra eager, looking for extra practice. Or maybe you could use these as a way to, uh, you know, kickstart or fuel the writing exercises. They could, I hope, feed each other. Uh, Today's writing prompt is called Put Down That Camera, or maybe I should say Put Down That Phone. If you remember, in the essay about the cruise, David Foster Wallace expresses, you know, a small amount of pride at being the only one on the cruise ship without a camera. Despite the fact that he had no camera, though, I'm sure you'd agree that his portrait of the trip was far more evocative and vivid than all the other videos and photos from the other passengers combined. Putting the lie to the old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I disagree. I think a thousand good words, well-chosen words, can outdo all the pictures in the world. So for this writing prompt, go somewhere highly photographable or choose an object that is highly beautiful or highly tempting to photograph. You know, a place or a thing that you'd be tempted to take lots of pictures of or video, like a scenic vista or a flea market, or a wedding, um, someplace where everyone else is recording on their phones. Instead of that, put down your phone, put down your camera, and take out a paper and a pencil. Try to use your eyes as the camera. Try to write something that will outdo all of those other photographs being taken by all those other people, right? Try to be more vivid, more evocative, more detailed, more surprising than any photograph could be. Try to see everything. Try to use your eyes as the camera. See everything and record it.
A variation of this writing prompt would be uh, to take a quote-unquote written photograph of a person that you love, a family member, a friend, a romantic partner. Stand in front of them and see how vivid you can make your portrait using only language. Okay, so for the poem of the day, I've chosen uh, this poem because it's about a young person just starting out to become a writer. And since we're all just starting out, I thought it would be appropriate. This poem is by Frank O'Hara, and the title of this poem is Autobiographia Literaria. Now, please don't be turned off by the very snooty and snobbish and elusive-sounding title. Autobiographia Literaria is just a half-joking, fancy way uh, to say literary autobiography, which is exactly what this very short poem is about. So here is Autobiographia Literaria by Frank O'Hara. When I was a child, I played by myself in a corner of the schoolyard all alone. I hated dolls and I hated games. Animals were not friendly and birds flew away. If anyone was looking for me, I hid behind a tree and cried out, I am an orphan. And here I am, the center of all beauty, writing these poems. Imagine. (laughs) Oh, what a great poem. I love that so much. I hope you enjoyed that recording and conversation about David Foster Wallace's essay. Um, Keep your eyes peeled for the next recording, which will be about Vladimir Nabokov's uh, book, Speak Memory. I happen to believe that this book is one of the best, most beautiful books of the whole 20th century, which is no small praise, and I'm really excited to talk about that one. In the meantime, uh, keep reading, keep having fun while you read, keep writing, And don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Bye.